Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Great Birth Rebellion. You're here with B and I, and B is on fire today. She is passionate about this topic, and I've given her the reins. She's riding the horse into the sunset from this morning. Uh, we're going to talk today about the reality of maternity care here in Australia. B has collected all the current stats, Australian birth stats. And if you're listening from somewhere else in the in the world, this is still relevant to you because if you're in the UK or in America or somewhere, I mean, probably if you're in one of the beautiful Scandinavian countries, all of these stats are going to be as mortifying as, um, as we believe they are. But anyway, feel free to listen in. But B's got us all organized today. And I'm gonna gi- I'm gonna give you the mic. Um, okay, thank you. I welcome everybody. Buckle in. Uh, I've been sitting with this, these statistics for a couple of weeks now, and the reason I want to do a podcast episode is I've shared some on my Instagram page, as I do every year with the when the birth stats reports come out. And this year, everyone has been like, "We want to know more. We want to know more." And I said to Mel, "We need to do a whole episode on it, even though we kind of allude to things throughout each episode." And I also want to say that my coping, I have two coping mechanisms, uh, two big coping mechanisms. One is that I work a lot. Uh, so when I have big feelings, instead of sitting with my feelings, I overwork. And uh, that's my addictive behavior is working. Paid work, I should say. So midwifery. Uh, my second one is sugar. I'm a sugar hunter. Late at night, I sugar hunt. And so I have had many bowls of ice cream with uh, chalk magic and sprinkles to digest these, these statistics and probably suppress some of my feelings. So who knows what's going to come out today? I could be completely numb or I could have a lot of big feelings. Stay tuned. I yes, Mel. That. I didn't know that you drowned your emotions in work and sugar. Mm, they're my two biggest coping mechanisms. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I suppress with that until I explode. And then I am a real aggressor with my feelings. Yeah. Not so much anymore. I've done a lot of work with my feelings. So mm. I actually can't remember the last time I yelled because I used to be a, a, a definitely a daily yeller, if not um, more than that, and my husband was very much scared of me before we had children from my aggression. So I've done a lot of work with my feelings, and now with these statistics, I went, I got very aware, right, B, you're trying to suppress some feelings here. Uh, go ahead and have two bowls of ice cream. You're allowed to because when we start to work with our feelings, we learn that self-compassion is the biggest thing we have to have. And so there was no capacity to feel the feelings and read the statistics. I just had to numb them. So they may come out today. But, yeah, workaholic and uh, sugar addicts, my two biggest ones. And oh biting God. my nails is probably my third. Now I'm starting <laughs> to think of what I do. I, I, um, oh. This I'm, just totally changed the course <laughs> of this podcast today. This is helpful information for people to know where we're at currently. And, you know, where this is. The the stats sent B back to her 
to her pathological coping mechanisms, right? That's how bad they are, isn't it? That's the point. Yeah, so I'm just, total disclaimer of where I'm at, like I'm getting off this podcast and we're starting to move furniture after this because we settle on our house at 2 o'clock and it's 12.30 when we're recording. Um, And uh, it's been a very full couple of weeks and now this is big. So just look, who knows with me, I could feel my feelings and cry. I might get a bit shaky and uh, ranty. So stay tuned. It's a surprise episode. All right. So we are, just to give people a bit of a background, the Mothers and Babies Report is published every year and it uh, looks at the data from about two years ago. So it takes people to, takes the the statisticians at the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare around two years to collate all the statistics from around Australia and put them into what is called the Mothers and Babies Report. So it comes out, it's free, you can get access to it. Mel will obviously link it in the show notes because that's what she does. She's so epic at doing that. And you can access it for free. I also, before we get started, really want to highlight two Instagram accounts. Firstly, birthstats underscore New South Wales is the handle. And they do a phenomenal job of breaking down statistics based on hospitals and there is also baby birth stats Vic, less active at the moment, but they have broken down Victorian hospitals. I don't know of any others, haven't seen any others that come from any of the other states. You can actually look in this Mothers and Babies report and you can see it broken down in the states too if you're interested of what's going on for you. Before we dive into that report, though, I just want to lay a little bit of a foundation because we know, and there's this beautiful, I read this the other day in actually an episode, but I want to read it again. It's a quote from Dr. Neil T. Shah, and it says, the biggest risk factor for the most common surgery performed on earth is not a woman's preferences or her medical risks, but literally which door she walks through. And I think that's why Mel and I I mean, it's why we started this podcast, uh, because we know that the antidote to this is education. The only way we are going to change things is if people assessing the care get informed. And as always, there is no right or wrong way to birth. There is just whatever is right for you. But on a massive, I think if you've come to this podcast, you know where Mel and I stand. And the reality is, oh, the tears are here. I can feel them. Physiological birth is pretty much extinct. That is the reality. Physiological birth very rarely happens in a hospital at all, even with the best gold standard of care, which we know is midwifery continuity of care. And the reason for this, so everybody's definition of physiological birth is different. And I really just want to respect that because some people will see it as just a baby coming out of a vagina and that'll be a non-instrumental vaginal birth. But true physiological birth, and again, my definition will be different to others, is where labor spontaneously starts. So your beautiful baby talks to your body and says, it's time to go. And that is through a release of hormones. So that is physiological. You then labor, you birth your baby without interventions, and then giving birth to your placenta on your own without intervention. So the majority of people who give birth in hospital will have the syntocin and injection. That then is the end of your physiological labor because physiology has been interrupted with medication through the syntocin and injection to birth your placenta. And can I suggest too that one of the first interventions that happens in birth, well, possibly there's more, but the movement from your home, your safe, space in the hospital is an intervention in the birth process because you're moving from somewhere 
to another space that may or may not feel safe to you. Um, Yeah. And so it's tricky. I mean, people can see questions as an intervention. There's a whole spectrum on this, but if we're talking physiology, it's where your body starts the labor, your body births your baby, your body births your placenta. That is physiological birth. And, uh, We don't report on physiological birth in the mothers and babies report. There is no such thing where it goes, was birth physiological or not? It is just vaginal birth. And the third stage management is not in there either. So we actually don't know what our physiological birth rate is in Australia. Those of us in this world assume it to be around 1% to 5%. I would say it's probably one to three. And the reason we come up with that number is those people who have born before arrival. So they plan a hospital birth, but they actually give birth before they get there. And even those often get syntocinum and those accessing home births really is where we kind of come up with that number. But we actually don't know There's only a few oxytocin researchers and attachment researchers in the world, but what they are noticing is that our capacity for oxytocin is decreasing. So what they're seeing in our babies that are being exposed to these interventions is our capacity to receive oxytocin within our bodies physiologically is decreasing. As a human, my tummy's rumbling and my eyes are wanting to cry at the same time. As a human being, that is the most alarming thing that I could ever hear because oxytocin is our beautiful hormone that brings connection. That is our biggest threat as a species right now is our disconnection, our disconnection to ourselves, our disconnection to our partners, our friends, our family and the earth. And this is where birth is so important. We need to get passionate about birth, not just for how our babies are born, but how that next generation is able to connect in with the world. And, you know, beautiful Sarah Buckley talks about that we can heal. Yeah, we can heal. We can bring that oxytocin and connection back. But really, we are living in an incredibly disconnected world and we need oxytocin. What kind of world and what kind of human beings does that create? Yeah, so just firstly, lots of love. There's no wrong or right. You want your elective cesarean section and it's the safest thing for you, by all means, go have it. Mel and I are passionate about physiological birth and that is why we are here to try and start boosting, boosting the numbers of physiological birth because not just because of what I've talked about, about connection and the worldwide issue, but also because physiologically birth is designed to enable us to feel our most powerful and our most connected. And when you feel your power and you are more connected to yourself and the humans around you, only epic things happen in the world. Only epic things. That's my rant. And now I'm going to go into the stats and we're going to talk about, we're going to lay the foundation first to really understand it. So in 2022, on March 8th, The Conversation published an an article and the article read, private obstetric care increases the chance of cesarean birth regardless of health needs and wishes. And that was based on an incredible publication done by you et al. So what it looked at was a really phenomenal study because often the 
argument when we say these kind of stats, right, private obstetric care increases intervention, the argument can often be, oh, it's because people want it. But people want people who want the cesareans come to us. So that's why our cesarean rates are higher. The other argument is, oh, we deal with much more high-risk people and that's why our cesarean rates are higher. So this study looked at 289,000 births between 2007 and 2012 in New South Wales. All participants had a low-risk pregnancy and right up to the start of their labour did not plan to have a cesarean section. Therefore, that rules out, oh, they just wanted a cesarean section. That rules out, oh, they're unhealthy and they need one. And what they saw was that women who had private obstetric care were more likely to have an unplanned cesarean birth independent of their health status or birth plans. So unplanned cesarean birth was 4.2% more likely in a private hospital compared with a public hospital. And for first-time parents, it was 7.7% more likely in a private hospital than a public. So we know that the two biggest impacts on your labour and birth are the people you choose to support you, the people you employ, either through Medicare or you pay for it, and the place you choose to birth. So the people you choose are private obstetrician, private midwife, or to care through the public system. And then the place you choose to birth, home, hospital, birth centre, public hospital, private hospital is because there are they are very different so this study showed us and that was published in 2022 the the truth which is if you choose private obstetric care you are you're at more risk of interventions and i totally get the reasons people do right not saying what's wrong or right what i'm saying is here is the information now make a decision The people listening to this really are going to be people who are super passionate about having a physiological birth, right? That's what we're talking about mostly more than anything today is what are the statistics around physiological birth? So sorry to get 10 minutes in and just be clear with what our intentions are today, but I think if you've ever come to our podcast, you probably know that. So the other really cool study that reinforces this was a study done by my um, incredible uh, academic supervisor, Carolyn Homer was published in 2019 and it's called the place of birth studies and to compare this was a place of birth studies so what they looked at is they looked at planned hospital births birth centers and publicly funded home, home birth so compared with planned hospital birth the odds of normal labor and birth were over twice as high in planned birth centers and nearly six times as high in planned publicly funded home births. So this did not look at private home births. It only looked at publicly funded home births, which is currently available. I don't know the actual stats at the moment, but about 16 places around Australia. So this is publicly funded home birth where the hospital system offers home birth through MGP. You are six times more likely to have a vaginal birth if you choose publicly funded home birth. So no statistical, and this is the really important thing, and this is a study I refer everyone to, there was no statistical difference in the proportion of intrapartum stillbirths, early or late neonatal deaths. So what that is saying is for babies, the outcomes were the same. For people giving birth, 
you want a higher chance of having a vaginal birth or a physiological birth, it's going to be twice as high in a planned birth center, six times as high in a publicly funded home birth. And I would go on to say we haven't got the statistics, but it would be higher in private home birth is, is from our experience. It's not uh, stated in any research. Okay, so this was a study that was done a little while ago now by Hannah Darlin that's showing that rates of obstetric intervention among low-risk women were higher in private hospitals with people having their first baby 20% less likely to have a vaginal birth compared to the public sector. Neonates born in private hospitals were more likely to be less than 40 weeks, more likely to have some form of resuscitation and less likely to have an APGAR score of less than seven at five minutes. We also know from this study um, from Hannah Darlin, it was published in 2014, neonates born in private hospitals to low-risk women, so healthy people, were more likely to have a morbidity attached to their birth admission and they were more likely to be readmitted to hospital in the first 28 days of life for things like birth trauma, low oxygen, jaundice, feeding difficulties, Sleep and behaviour issues were actually recorded in this in the first 28 days, respiratory conditions and circumcision as well. I'll put all of these papers in the resource folder as well. And that was the the, the Darlin, Hannah Darlin paper. Mm. Yeah, it's 2014 or 2012. It was based in New South Wales. They also found that neonates born in private hospitals to healthy people were also less likely to be admitted for prophylactic antibiotics and for socioeconomic circumstances. Rates of perinatal mortality were not different between the groups. So the conclusion of this study showed that for healthy people, so what we call low risk, caring private hospital, which includes higher rates of intervention, appears to be associated with higher rates of morbidity seen in the neonate and no evidence of a reduction in perinatal mortality. So morbidity is sickness. So we're seeing higher sickness rates in these babies. So higher intervention, higher sickness rates. And this is the other thing that drives us. Apart from all that beautiful stuff that I talked about with oxytocin, the reality is what we're seeing is more sickness, both physical sickness, right, through admission back, readmission back to hospital, but also emotional sickness, right, which is our birth trauma and the flow-on effects of that. That is the reality now. So it's not just if you want a vaginal birth, it's what do you want your entry into your family life to be? What do you want that entry into motherhood, fatherhood, parenthood to look like and feel like? And how healthy do you want your baby to be? Because so often the reason we choose these private obstetric models is for health. The evidence is showing us that they're actually experiencing more morbidity, more sickness. And I think the issue that we have with it too is is not only just that you know the intervention rates are higher but what the medical model and modern maternity is telling us is that because they're intervening we're getting better outcomes or that higher intervention should lead to better outcomes and if that were true i don't think we would have an issue with intervening in birth if the intervention levels as they increased reduce the chances of you getting sick or someone dying then I think we would be way more in favour of of birth interventions because they would genuinely save more people's lives. But I think what we're seeing is is it doesn't matter how much more you intervene, we're not actually improving outcomes for women and babies. And what we're seeing now is as the intervention rates increase, we're now seeing an increase in 
in poor outcomes. Yeah. And this is, I do a um, post every year and I haven't had the capacity to post it yet because it does take capacity because it typically blows up the internet where I show um, the rates of interventions in 2000, 2010 and 2020 or 21 where we're at to. And I, in comparison next to it, show a graph of our perinatal death rates, right? This year it was 10.1 per 1,000 live births. So perinatal death is stillbirth. So after 20 weeks up until baby is born, if the baby dies, that's a stillbirth, and then death in the first 28 days of life. So that's a perinatal death. Anywhere from 20 weeks pregnant to 28 days of life is a perinatal death. I think it was 8.3 in 2000 and it was 10.1 in 2021. Now, totally acknowledging there that we had COVID and we had severe bushfires, which is what the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare also reported on in that stat. But we have not seen an improvement in perinatal mortality. We have not seen a change in stillbirth. We have not seen a change in that perinatal death rate. What we have seen a change in is huge intervention rates. So the induction rate, for example, from 2020 to 2021 increased by 10%. And so we have proof in the statistics that, and people will argue this because people will say that we're becoming more sick and that's why the interventions are necessary. But the reality is we are not seeing with everything that we're doing, we're not seeing a change. And what we are seeing is more morbidity. And this is, this is, we have the evidence. This is what needs to be able to change our intervention rates and it's not happening. And so if it can't happen at a system level, this is why Mel and I bring this podcast to you. So it can happen on an individual level. So you can get informed. And if that intervention feels safe for you, great. Because we're not Mm anti-intervention. I've worked in countries where we had nothing and I've craved intervention. 100% not against it. But the majority of what we are seeing is unnecessary. And the reason we can state that it's unnecessary is because we're not seeing an improvement in health outcomes. And And I think what we need to remember is that probably women aren't getting more sicker, but more women are being classified as sick because we're changing the definition of sickness. So this, we saw this in gestational diabetes testing where they lowered the limits where women are being classified as gestational diabetic. And all of a sudden with a policy of induction of labor for anybody who has a diagnosis of gestational diabetes, our rates of gestational diabetes go up, not because women, more women are getting gestational diabetes, but because they changed the criteria that, that it was defined as, and then We start inducing more women because everyone who's gestational diabetic gets induced. And so women haven't changed, but the system has changed and it's favoring higher intervention rates. Yeah. You know, you mentioned diabetes there. The highest reason for induction this year was diabetes. And we will get to that. Um, But that was the most common reason people were induced. And it never used to be. It actually used to be prolonged pregnancy. And that has changed since the criteria around diabetes has changed. The other thing is people are talking about that women are getting fatter and older, and that's why we have to do more. Well, we're doing more because because we don't trust Right, we don't trust that older women can birth. We don't trust that um, people who are 
by BMI definition, overweight and obese, you know, even that, we're using an outdated measurement here. We know BMI doesn't work. So we're still using that to classify people and then we're making policies around that. And I know we talk about midwifery continuity of care all the time. So this was the Cochrane Review that we talk about all the time. So we've got 15 studies, including over um, 17,500 women and babies. And it showed that when a healthy person has midwifery continuity of care, the main benefits include fewer epidurals, fewer episiotomies, fewer instrumental births, fewer preterm births, and fewer neonatal deaths. So this was the first time we had something that said, wow, look at this right? When you have a midwife that follows you through, not only are you having the physiological outcomes, we're seeing less preterm birth, which is the the number one cause of child mortality under five years in high and middle income countries and less neonatal death. So we actually have something that we know that lowers the death rate. And this is national and international data, right? So we have the research, we know what works and we still keep putting money into all the things that don't, like CTGs. And we even have research because then the midwives got super smart and they went, right, let's show how cost-effective it is because this is how systems work. They work on money, so let's get cost-effective. And they showed that it decreased costs of the healthcare system. Still, nada, nothing. We're not getting increased models of midwifery free care people have to you know the the cultural belief now is you have to ring the hospital and book in to get an mgp midwife as soon as you have sex with somebody and the current like the issue at the moment too with trying to institute change with models of care is that in the australian healthcare system there's a hierarchical model where doctors and obstetricians are the gatekeepers of however things are going to change within a hospital system so if you propose to turn a hospital system care into all midwifery-led, midwifery continuity of care, there is most definitely going to be a barrier that you've got to get past to actually bring the obstetric team on board. Because if they say no, that's it. It will not happen in the hospital. And this is the issue with maternity care is it doesn't matter how much research we have. If there's a doctor in power who does not want models to change, they won't change unless there's a champion who'll keep petitioning for it, unless there's numbers. Like there needs to be an actual movement of numbers, of staff, of midwives, of other clinicians putting enough pressure on the people who are naysayers over changing maternity care models in order for there to be a change. So it's all about power dynamics and politics in a hospital. It often is not about actual research. There are so many blockages. So that care provider study also showed that if you have a midwifery continuity of care, you're more likely to have spontaneous vaginal births. All right, let's get into the stats. Buckle in, peeps. This is pretty depressing. So the onset of labour, how people start their labour. In 2021, 25% of people so one in four had no labour whatsoever. So that means no oxytocin in that person's body. The baby is not initiating any labour process. There is no oxytocin being felt in that body at all. Zero labour, one in four. 34% had an induction. 
So it was 26% so in 2011. Yeah. That, that 25% who had no labour, that's because they just went straight for cesarean section without labour. Yeah. 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 So their labour does not start at all. They have no contractions whatsoever. So they have a cesarean, straight for a cesarean section. So it's 25% in 2021. It was 19% in 2011. So it's increased by 6% in 10 years. Labor. So the amount of people that had their labor induced was 34%. So one in three are having their labor induced in 2021. That was 26% in 2011. 41% of people who gave birth in 2021 did go into labor spontaneously, right? So 41% of people who gave birth had a spontaneous labor. However, 28% of them experience augmentation, right? So augmentation is different to induction. Induction is a process where the medical procedures are used to start your labor. So either mechanical things like a balloon, for example, or medication like gel or the syntocin and drip. Uh, Another medical thing is breaking your waters. So your labor hasn't started and we induce it. We, We start it medically. Augmentation is where your labor has actually started on its own. Your beautiful body and baby have done its own thing and then we mess with it, right? And the reason we mess with it is often, like the technical term is intervene, right? There is an intervention. The reason we do that typically is because we want to speed it up, right? So really thinking about those episodes we've done on length of labor, if you and your baby are well, what is the rush? And the rush is the system. The rush is needing beds. So augmentation can be where they break your waters for you mechanically or um, giving you the syntocin and drip. So if we do the maths there, 28% of 41% means that only 30% of people, less than one in three people in Australia, currently start their labor naturally and continue their labor naturally until the baby is born. So this isn't saying that they're having a vaginal birth. This is just that their labor has not been intervened with, right? And intervened in terms of medically, because I'm sure there's other definitions that people could have interventions. We're being very broad here. So that is 30%, less than one in three. That alone, I feel like we just need to end the podcast there because that alone sends me into absolute misery. And the the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare lists this, right? So I really want to say they've put evidence into their report and they have said induction of labour increases the risk of emergency caesarean section, infection, bleeding, and a less positive birth experience when compared to spontaneous labour. They actually put that research in there. I was super, super proud to see that. So why would we do it? We would do it if it was life-saving and it was going to improve outcomes. But the research is showing it to a less positive birth experience. So we are not improving physical and or emotional health outcomes here. Yeah, and as we said before, I think we wouldn't be as irritated with the stats if they were actually making a difference to outcomes. Yeah, but all you and I are doing is sitting back. All I've done for 15 years is sit back and watch all the physiological stats decrease and all the intervention stats increase and not a change in perinatal death. If anything, we're higher. We're almost 
two per 1,000 live live births higher than 20 years ago. The perinatal death rate, it has increased on these stats. And what we've also started collecting is stats on birth trauma, not Australia's Australian mothers and babies report. Obviously, they're not interested in that, but yet they're not interested in it yet. They will be. This will be something that has to start coming in to this because what they're actually measuring is just the ticker box statistics, Mm. right? But we need to start seeing this as the holistic event that it is because of the flow and effects it has for families in terms of perinatal anxiety, depression, divorce rates, you know, um, child health. Mm. And all the things that people are trying, you know, we've got this you know, I'm going to do a whole episode on it, but this safer baby bundle, which is not making anyone safer. We can see from the stats it's not actually working. There's this ridiculous processes that are attached to the safer baby bundle, which we'll go through in another episode. You know, the perineal bundle, all these bundles, the back to normal birth initiative, which took off, you know, 10 years ago. Nothing's working, guys. We have to, like, I just... I hate all these new initiatives that panels just decide on and that policies get developed around. And then we keep ignoring the fact that we've already got information that shows if you give women midwives and let them birth where they want to birth, you're actually going to improve outcomes. So anything that's not that in my books is going to be a Band-Aid solution. Do you know what we do know? You want to keep a baby safe, you keep its mother safe. And do you know what enables people to feel safe? support, choice, and autonomy, time, care that involves time. So, yeah, for some people, private midwifery, home birth, public hospital midwifery isn't going to feel safe for them. Great. Give them choice and autonomy. Give them. And I think this is where many of us get really upset is because there often is choice and support for people that want that. You know, you can, and I, and I totally acknowledge that you have to pay for that in private obstetric care, but there often is a choice around that. You can have an elective cesarean section. You can do that in private and public. You can't have a publicly funded home birth anywhere you are. You can't have publicly funded emotional support with a free doula and or a free midwife wherever you are. But you can choose the other options. This is about enabling everybody to have choice and everybody to have the right support that helps them to feel safe because when they're safe, their baby will be safe. So when we look, when we break down the onset of labour statistics, labour onset varied by maternal age group and parity. So parity means the amount of babies you've had. So people aged 20 and under were most likely to have a spontaneous labour, 53%. People aged 40 and over were the most likely to have no onset of labour. Now, what this does is it doesn't say, oh, if you're younger, you're more capable of having a physiological birth. What I see this explore more of is the policies um, around people. So we know that many hospitals have a policy, if you are age 40 and over, that you will receive an induction simply based on age. And we haven't covered that yet, but we will, and we'll actually dive into the research around it because it is something that's driven. So 44% of people age 40 and over had no labour at all. And so just being super clear here, these statistics, they're just stated. They don't actually help us to understand why. But I think the whole, all the podcasts that we do help us to bring this together. 
And obviously people who had a multiple pregnancy were more likely to have no labor, 58%, than people having um, one baby, which was 24%. So the main reasons for inducing labor were the top reason is diabetes at 15%. Pre-labor rupture of membranes was 10% and prolonged pregnancy was 9.9%. So we have done episodes on all of those. Go and check them out. Super important to know when you're pregnant that the three biggest things that are going to drive you for induction are diabetes, pre-labor rupture of membranes. Please listen to that episode before it happens to you. Know what your choices will be before it happens to you. Get informed. This is how we decrease interventions and prolonged pregnancy, which is not actually defined. And so what one hospital may define as prolonged may be very different to another hospital or care provider's definition of prolonged. And so it just says that prolonged pregnancy is being given. In Mel and I, our definition of prolonged pregnancy is greater than 42 weeks. And we did do an episode. Please go back and listen to it. So labor was augmented with breaking the waters or syntocinin for 15% of people, 28% of those with a spontaneous onset of labor. Augmentation rate was higher in people having their first babies at 39%. So 39% augmentation rate if you had a spontaneous labor compared with 20% of multiples, so people having their second or subsequent baby. So if you're pregnant with your first baby, 30% chance, and actually it would be lower than 38%. So we've got... 39, well, I can't do the maths in my head, but just know that you are at more risk of having your labor augmented, which comes back to duration of labor. How fast do we need you to birth so you can get out, we can clean the bed and we can get somebody else in. It's a bed management issue. If you and your baby are well, it is a bed management issue. It is different if you are sick. All right. It gets a bit more depressing. Method of birth. 50% of women in 2021, had a non-instrumental vaginal birth, non-instrumental vaginal birth, 50%. So one in two. That's not saying it's physiological. All that's saying is a baby came out of the vagina, right? That's not saying that you were undisturbed. It just means, you know, that doesn't mean that it was without epidural. It just means that one in two people pushed a baby out through their vagina without instrumental birth or cesarean so does that mean didn't have a vacuum didn't have an episiotomy didn't have forceps didn't have a cesarean no it doesn't mean didn't have vacuum forceps or cesarean they still could have had an episiotomy oh so an episiotomy is not considered instrumental like no okay no Just vacuum and forceps. So 50% of women pushed a baby out without it being pulled out by vacuum or forceps or cesarean section. Yes. Yeah. So this is where it gets interesting, right? Because in 2011, it was 56%. If we look at the cesarean rates, 38% of women and or people giving birth had a cesarean section in 2021. That was 32% in 2011. So the 6% that were having vaginal births are now having cesareans because our instrumental rates have stayed the same. So in 10 years, 6% of the population has lost vaginal birth and has moved on to cesarean section. So 50% chance, one in two that you'll have a vaginal birth, 38% 
that you'll have a cesarean birth. So instrumental so, hasn't changed because I thought they were starting to favor cesareans over forcep birth. And so maybe that had changed, but you're saying no. No. And do you know what is interesting? So the overall rate of instrumental birth hasn't changed. What has changed is a 0.7% difference in 10 years between vacuum and forceps. And interestingly, more people in 2021 had forceps, 4.9 compared to 4.2 in 2011. 7.2%. So more people are still having vacuums, but we just saw that really slight, very, very slight 0.7% increase in forceps. We've just seen taken off the vaginal births and onto cesarean section. Of all babies who were born via cesarean section, 64% had no labour onset. 36% required a cesarean after labour started. So 64% were having a cesarean, which is a planned cesarean, no labour onset. 27% had a primary cesarean section, right? So cesarean section with no previous history of cesarean. So 27% are having their first cesarean section. This is where it gets really heartbreaking. It's higher for people having their first baby 40% 40% of people having their first baby are having a primary cesarean having a cesarean section their first obviously without history lower for multiple so 13% so 40% of first time women having their first babies are having cesarean sections and the reason it's 38 overall is that less women who've had a baby before will actually have a cesarean section And then if we pair that with the fact that very few hospitals are welcoming the process of VBAC where you have a vaginal birth after cesarean, if the stats continue like this, we're actually going to keep perpetuating cesarean sections because 40% of women having their first baby have had a cesarean section. So the most common reason for cesarean birth in Australia is a previous cesarean section. And this statistic I'm about to read for me personally is the most alarming. Most people who had a previous cesarean section had a repeat cesarean section, 87%. That means our vaginal birth after cesarean section, oof, the tears are back. Our VBAC rate in this country is 13%. So having had a previous cesarean section was the most common reason for having a cesarean section so what that shows us is that birth trauma I feel like I need you Mel because I feel like I just I can't look I I just can't I feel like okay I I wish I could (sighs) what do I want to say about this I mean 15 years ago when I left the healthcare maternity healthcare system intending to be a home birth private midwife this is the exact reason why I didn't stay is that I genuinely believe that we've got it completely wrong in the system that hospital-based fragmented care that's governed by obstetrics is wrong it's not it's not the way to manage a state of well-being which is what childbirth is just a state Oh, sorry, being pregnant is a state of being. It's not sickness. 
but we're managing it like sickness and this is what you get. So if anybody who can change things is actually listening, can we just kind of acknowledge that the tr- the horse is bolted? It's now this thing's getting out of control. We can see it in the stats. We're not improving outcomes. We're increasing interventions. We're actually making people sick. We're giving people things like scars on their uterus for no particular reason because the World Health Organization has already told us for years and years and years and years before I was even a home birth midwife, they were telling the world that if you increase the cesarean section beyond 10% of the population, you are not going to improve outcomes for women or babies. So anything, so about 10% of women, the World Health Organization says about 10, I think they may have changed it to 15 at some point, let's say 10 to 15% of women might require a cesarean section. And if we give cesarean sections at that level, we're going to see an improvement in outcomes. Beyond that, no improvement. If you reduce it, you're going to see more maternal and neonatal morbidity. So I think we just all need to stop peddling the message that hospital is best and safest for every single woman because currently 97% of women give birth there, but not 97% of women and babies need a hospital. So we need to stop peddling that message to start with and all the stats are showing it. And so I guess we're just here to call it out, really, aren't we? Just say this is, we're calling out the fact that increased uh, intervention rates aren't improving the stats. And also we need to acknowledge, and medicine is not used to the idea that uh, we can't rescue everybody. There's going to be a circumstance in maternity care where it doesn't matter how much we know or how many tools we have or where you are to give birth or how, how much expertise that person has. Sometimes things aren't going to go right. Some things are, sometimes things are going to go wrong. And that's not something that medical people are comfortable with. And I think part of the issue is that we're trying to make sure every single person survives the childbirth process, but at such a high detriment to everybody else. And, and I'm not saying that you know, yes, how amazing would it be if no woman and no baby died or was harmed by the process of childbirth? But that's not reality. The reality is that when we choose or when we become pregnant, there is a chance that that either the mum or baby won't survive that life stage, that life moment. That's reality. We can do our absolute very best to improve outcomes for people. But intervening in this many births is not the answer. I think we should be trying to save as many women and babies as possible. But intervening in this highly medical way is showing it's not the answer. So I think we need to first acknowledge that before we continue yeah. on with yeah. And that's the issue, right? Is that it's not it's acknowledging that as a whole culture. And that's why you and I got together and we did this right that's why it's that was you know we're talking about being rebellious because we want to we want an uprising we really want people to band together and and get the right information because what is driving this is huge misinformation and fear fear generates more fear generates more fear and all fear is doing is generating intervention because people truly believe out there that intervention is necessary for the majority. That's what our stats, so our stats are showing that 
intervention is occurring for the majority of people, then the belief system that is driving that, that is causing us to see these increases every single year, because every intervention has gone up every single year, what is causing that is what is being fed back in, which is intervention is necessary. So we go, oh, intervention is necessary. Keep doing more intervention. Oh, we keep doing more intervention. It must be necessary. Okay, intervention is necessary. And we've just on this hamster wheel of intervention and no one's actually going, whoa, okay. Yeah. We say we've made a mistake. And the reason we know we've made a mistake, we're not just, not just sitting here saying, oh, it's going wrong. We've got the research shows, and you've already mentioned it, when women have their babies at home under the care of their own midwife, the outcomes are actually very, very, very similar. So the current, what we currently know is that giving birth at home is just as safe for babies, but safer for women to give birth at home with a private midwife, but with heaps, heaps, heaps less intervention, like six times less is one of the stats that we found in the the birthplace in Australia study, right? Six times less chance of intervention by cesarean section if you give birth at home, but with not worse outcomes. And so when people say, oh, yeah, the interventions are saving women and babies, that is the number one lie that we are talking, that people are telling in the world is that interventions the high intervention rate is to save women and babies. That's not true. Interventions can save some women and babies, but this level of intervention, I think we're starting to see the curve now where, where our increased interventions are showing the harm that's occurring. The lie here is that all interventions are necessary. That's the cultural belief that all of them are necessary. So if we look at cesarean births for those having their first babies, Oh, so here we go. It wasn't 40%. That was 40% of primary cesarean. I don't know how they broke that down. But cesarean birth for those having their first babies, 33% of people having their first baby had a cesarean section. So one in three people having their first baby are having a cesarean section. That was 25% in 2004. Cesarean birth for people having their first babies was higher in private hospitals than in public hospitals. So 43% compared to 29%. So that is Australian health and research statistics. They are they are actually say, stating it now. If you're in a private hospital, higher. It was slightly higher for women living in areas of least disadvantage than more disadvantage, right? So more affluent places have higher cesarean section, more advantaged places. So vaginal birth, so there's a 62% uh, rate of vaginal birth, so that includes instrumental. Non-instrumental births were more common for people who birthed at term and post-term, those that were younger and of underweight or normal weight, according to BMI. Instrumental births were much more common with people having their first babies, so they had a 9.5% faucet rate and a 12% vacuum rate and decreased as people had more Um, subsequent babies, so two or more babies. Instrumental births are higher for people who gave birth in private hospitals, 9.2, compared to 6.6% in public hospitals. Higher for people who lived in least disadvantaged areas compared to those that lived in most disadvantaged areas. This is a bit that uh, really uh, made Rhea Dempsey go wild the other night. 80% of people who had a labour in Australia had pharmaceutical pain management. 
So 52% had nitrous oxide, 42% had epidural, and 11% had opioids. Again, this is a cultural message. This is a misbelief around pain and really how we view pain in our culture, uh, you know, how we view physiological pain and pathophysiological pain and how many of us don't know the difference, how we will cheer our sporting heroes on, but we will not cheer pregnant people. And if you don't want to be cheered on and you want to have the drugs, great. But most people want to be cheered on and they're not getting cheered on. And again, this is that cultural thing of, I'll love just have the epidural, you'll be right. These stats really show what is going on culturally. So please go and listen to the supporting your partner in labor episode that we did and the one we did with Rhea Dempsey around pain in labor to really understand this statistic and why it doesn't have to be so high because it does increase risk of intervention. And we just, and the episode we just um, released on non-pharmaceutical pain management strategies that can give you an alternative to the 80% option of pharmaceutical pain relief. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Interestingly, with pharmaceutical pain management, people who gave birth in a private hospital were more likely to receive pain relief, 85%, than people that gave birth in a public that wasn't much difference. It was 81% in a public and 85% in a private. And I think that is the other thing. The two biggest misbeliefs are that we want to make the pain go away and that's going to be a good thing for labour. It often isn't a good thing for labour. We want to work with the pain and that all interventions are necessary. So people who did not have pharmaceutical pain management were more likely to be aged over 40 have given birth before and be First Nations. I just want to give this one super interesting. 94% of people who gave birth had babies in a head down position and 4.1% of people had babies in a breech position. So 6% of people aged 40 had babies in a breech presentation, 3.1% of people aged 20 and 3.3% of people aged 20 to 24 had um, babies in breach. Only that's, 0.6, what were you going to say? That's an increase, the, the breach rate. I wonder if the um, increase in twin pregnancies is leading to increase in breach. Mm-hmm. Well, multiple births. Multiple births were more likely to have a baby in breach, so they talk about the position of the baby that's closest to the vagina. compared with 74% of people who had a people with a baby in a vertex presentation. And then this is the interesting bit, given that we've done a whole episode on breach. Only 0.6% of people who had a baby in breach position had a non-instrumental vaginal birth compared with 9.9% of people who had a cesarean section. So our vaginal birth you mean rate. 90, you mean 99? No, 9.9% of people who had a cesarean section were people having. So 9.9% uh, sorry, of sorry, people yeah, yeah. having cesarean were those with a baby in breach. Only 0.6% of people who had a baby in breach position had a non-instrumental birth. So virtually a hundred. So almost 100% of babies who are breech are not being born vaginally spontaneously. 
Okay, yeah, everybody has to go and listen to that breach episode with Andrew Bissett's Get Onto the Breach Without Borders website and training. And Dr. Stu, who did our twins episode, also does a reteach breach course that you can all get on board with. So if that's, that'll take out 9% of the cesarean sections at least. Yeah. So this, again, another misbelief that for babies born in breach, they have to be born via cesarean, right? All these misbeliefs that are driving the interventions that we have a belief system that if your baby is breached, then it has to be born via cesarean section. And then we're seeing it in the stats. Perineal status. So 19% of people had an intact perineum. 31% had second degree tears. 23% 23% had first degree. So first is the skin. Our second degree goes into the muscle. So 19 intact. I was surprised by that. I was actually pleasantly surprised with that. Pleasantly surprised with 19%. I thought it was going to be less. I thought yeah. given all the other yeah, given all the other stats, I was like, no, I was like under 10%, I was guessing. I haven't looked at my perineal stats in a few years. But mine was hovering. You're going to now? Well, I'll have to. I mean, mine was hovering at like 60% intact. Hmm. Uh, Yeah, but this is taking all risks, all situations. So 19%, 31% second degree, so into the muscle, 23% first degree. Less than 3% had a third or fourth degree tear. 25% had an episiotomy noting that people could be recorded as having both an episiotomy and some degree of other tears. So internationally, Australia's rate of third and fourth degree tears is higher than the average OECD countries, so 2.2 per 100 non-instrumental vaginal births compared with the OECD average of 1.4 and 5.7 per 100 instrumental vaginal births compared with 5.3 so just a little bit higher in that instrumental birth but almost one higher in the non-instrumental births same with cesareans we're much higher than the other oecd countries so oecd is organization for economic cooperation and development for those wondering and the cesarean average for oecd countries is 28 per 100 live births and australia is at 34 per 100 live births. Uh, so 92% of babies are born at term, which is defined as 37 to 41 weeks. So 92% of babies are born between 37 and 41 weeks. 32% are born at early term, so 37 to 38%. 60% are at what is defined in this report as full term, so 39 to 41%. 8.2% were born preterm, and of those, the majority were born between 32 and 36 weeks. Babies born between 20 and 36 weeks has remained steady uh, between 8.3% in 2011 and 8.2% in 2021. Babies born between 37 and 39 weeks. This is the interesting part. We've talked about this. We've talked about this in different um, podcasts, but especially in the induction one. Babies born between 37 and 39 weeks increased from 19% in 2011 to 23% in 2021. Proportion born from 40 weeks onwards 
has decreased. So if we just look at 40 weeks, it's decreased from 25% in 2011 to 20% in 2021. And this is the bit that I really love. 92% of babies were born with a normal birth weight, which is still defined by Australian Institute of Health and Welfare as babies between 2.5 and 4.499 kilos. Now, for all of you that have been, I saw the other day a midwife post her dating scan on social media and say, of course, her baby's measuring big at eight weeks. And I just crumbled into a heap because that is what is happening out there. People are now being told that their babies are big from their dating scan from eight weeks. We are commenting on size. 1.2% of babies were defined as having a high birth weight, 4.5 kilos or more is what it's defined as, 1.2%. Go and listen to our birth weight study. I don't have the capacity to get into it today. I'm just too upset at that, just seeing that image the other day. Let's just imagine with the Matildas, right? For the whole lead up to the World Cup, they were being told, oh, the other team is too big. That other team is so big. Have you seen how big they are? Have you seen how tall that other team is? How much confidence are they going to come onto the field with? Right? Compared to you're amazing, you can do this, you can beat them. Our belief in our sporting teams needs to replicate our belief in people giving birth because that is what's driving this, all the belief systems we hold around birth and how quickly that belief system has changed, right? Our grandmothers didn't have these belief systems, right? <laughs> because it wasn't there, it didn't exist. And when I worked in the Solomon Islands, it didn't exist either. 6.8% of babies were low birth weight, 6.3% of live-born babies and 82% of stillbirth babies. And this is why, yeah, we really do care about babies who aren't growing well. Yeah, we want to care about them who aren't. We're seeing changes in that placenta and that baby's not growing well. That's not the case here. The, the case that's driving a lot of intervention is this high birth weight, which attributes to 1.2% of babies born. 79% of babies required no resuscitation. So we're going to look at resuscitation methods here. 79% required no resuscitation. 79% percent none. Is that 20? Yeah. So that, 21% like, of babies needing resus. What's going on, guys? Yeah, but that's the... That, Replica, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, we could we could we could look at that um, and explain it, but that is four out of five babies do not require resuscitation, even with. I, I see this as a really positive thing. I see this as a beautiful message to filter back into the community to start uh, starting to dispel the myths, right? For resuscitation, I, so but they would they would include like stimulation as resuscitation. What's the definition? Like we're not talking about full hmm. cardiac massage and oxygen no, 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 and no, no, no. emergency. No, no, I'm going to break that down. So a 10% required continuous positive airways, 4% intermittent positive pressure ventilation, 3.7 oxygen percent and 7% suction. So in 79% required no resuscitation. So that's four out of five babies don't require resuscitation. Because I think the biggest fear, fear is my baby's going to die. My baby's going to need something that is 
It can only happen in a hospital. So firstly, resuscitation methods are available at home birth. And, you know, we have things to resuscitate babies at home births. That's often a big misbelief around home birth is that we don't have tools there. We do. Except Um, also that the chances of your baby needing resuscitation at home are so minuscule. They are not 21%. I do not resus 21% of babies. If I had to resus 21% of the babies that were born at home, I would absolutely quit my job. But this is taken into consideration, no preterm babies and stuff. It's right, live okay. babies. Okay. So these would be. Which adverse. you're not doing. No, so I'm your fine. rates are going to be a lot lower, but what your rates resemble is physiological birth. Right. So, yeah, the just so people know, you're not going to turn up to hospital and have a one in five chance of your baby needing resuscitation if the baby's full term. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and I guess that's why I'm really like I'm I'm really positive about these because I'm like with everything that goes on in birth and with you know because we do like when I was in the Solomons if a baby was born really premature we we wouldn't attempt anything because there was nothing to support that baby and from any stage there was nothing to support the baby in hospital like we didn't have humid cribs or um, we didn't have continuous positive airway or we didn't even have intermittent we just had a bag of masks that was it so there was nothing to keep supporting that baby in hospital, nor was there anything to support that baby in community. So it was very much accepted by the community and and culture there that those babies passed and and needed to pass away. Um, But this shows that with everything going on, with us resuscitating babies super early, with all the interventions, still four out of five babies are coming out like, yeah, did it made it look how awesome I am like this just shows how beautifully strong our bubbers are like I think I I I know I've been pretty cranky about the other stats but I see this as like huh see birth isn't scary birth isn't that scary like yeah so no your risk of your baby being resuscitated is not one in five a healthy term i haven't broken the stats down to look at that um, of term babies i don't know if it did you can go and have a look at the stats yourself but i'm like wow with everything we're doing they're coming out and they're still thriving and isn't that a beautiful message to feed back that actually our babies are super super capable so 87 percent of babies of low birth weight required resuscitation Premature, so 90% of babies born preterm. So the majority of that 21% of babies being resuscitated are low birth weight, premature, and actually born as part of multiple births, which we know are going to fit into the low birth weight and preterm categories more than a singleton pregnancy. So 82% of babies born as part of multiple birth are resuscitated. Right. So those that have an APGAR score of less than seven are definitely going to include those, but can also include babies who are actually born needing a little bit more help at birth. So what this beautifully reflects to me is how epic physiological birth is, really. Uh, 17% of babies required admission to special care nursery and or neonatal intensive care. So again, Babies were more likely to be admitted if they were preterm, so 77%, right? And often that's an automatic admission if babies are preterm. First Nations of low birth weight or of twins. So if you're there with a healthy pregnancy, one baby, birthing your baby at term, we know that your chances of this are very, 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 very small, which is what we want to drive people with, right? This is this kind of stuff that can actually decrease fear. 
And I think that's really, really cool. And we've already mentioned perinatal death, which is 10.1 per 1,000 births, so 1%. So stillbirths are 7.7 per 1%, so risk of stillbirth is 0.7%. Neonatal death, so baby dying from birth to the first 28 days, is 2.5 per 1,000 births, so 0.2%. So again, it hasn't changed over 20 years, probably more, even though our interventions are increasing and it's really low. So this, your baby's going to die card. Well, yeah, your baby has a 1% chance in Australia at the moment if we look at everything, right? So this is stillbirth is from 20 weeks to birth, 1%. So there is a 99% chance that your baby's not going to die. We are a very, very safe country to give birth in and to be pregnant in. We are very, very safe. What we are, we, you know, what's our birth trauma rate? One in three, probably a hell of a lot more, right? What does a baby need to nurture and thrive? A healthy, a healthy mama. And that brings us to the end of these statistics today. Uh, I don't have much left in my tank. I really oh my don't. <laughs> I mean, I just want everybody to realize that these stats aren't stats about physiological birth these are a reflection on the current state of our system and on the care options that women have it's not a reflection on the health and well-being or education of our maternal population this is it is a reflection on the education it's a hundred percent this is what we're growing up with in schools. This is totally a reflection on sexual education. No, it's but a it's reflection not like, on where. I feel like it's not like it's not birthing women's fault that these are the stats. This no, this is the care that is no, imposed not on at women. All. And even if they know better, they can't get anything better because the system puts barriers. There's political, social, you know, structural, systematic barriers to women. Even if they know what they want and if they want something different, they can't get it in the current system unless they claw, fight, ring the minute they are pregnant, save money, move house. Like this is. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. That's the biggest that's the biggest thing. Mm. And also there is a huge misbelief around birth, which is those people listening to this are are getting informed, right? Like you've come to this podcast because you want to be informed. Then the issue is how does that get supported? And it often doesn't, which is what you were talking about, big claw fight. So we're, we're doing a lot in this space to change it. I know this is a, this is a downer of an episode, um, but this is the reality and it needs to be in here so you know what your reality is. People should People need to know. My chance of having a physiological labour is 30%, right? That yeah. tells you what you're up against and then it allows you to go, right, what do I need to increase that? Yes, I need a midwife, I need a doula, I need to birth in a place that isn't a hospital. That's a reality. And we need yes. more midwives to move into private, to move into private midwifery. But in saying that, it's not fair that only those that can afford it or can scrimp and save, because that's the reality. And with the you know current 
climate of finances, it's massive. Mm. And I think so with all that doom and gloom of what we know in the system, I think what that just highlights is we haven't got the system right. So how do we improve it? Uh, it'll be a slow, gradual push. And if you heard our episode on how to change the system, that is what needs to happen to keep changing the system is slow, gradual pushes from a very from a passionate group of people who refuse to give up. And if you're a consumer or a care provider, there's something different you could do in the space. So being a piece in the puzzle of change, fighting for midwifery models of care. If you are pregnant, and you want to access midwifery care, you've got to do it early. Unfortunately, that's the other barrier is if you discover this at 20 weeks pregnant, your options become limited. But I don't want to leave you with that. Get a student, do student midwife or doula yeah. as, uh, if you can. And just get informed, right? There's this podcast. I've got my free antenatal classes. You can also book one-on-one chats with me and my team. So we can sit down with you and really nail out what is going to enable you to feel safe emotionally and physically in your birth. And I do chats with people that want private cesareans and private home births and everything in between because it ain't about me. It's about you and what's going to keep you safe and um, feeling epic throughout your labour and birth so that you enter parenting feeling friggin phenomenal thank you for bringing all the stats man because i could not have trudged through them i just am over the fact that we're still accepting that this is all appropriate so i appreciate we're not accepting it we are not you and i are not accepting it it's why we're here the people listening to it are not accepting it we're starting a revolution we have to it's happening people are pissed off about us that's the good news that means there's change coming yes Thanks, B. That was amazing to bring all that. Thanks, Mel. And Thanks for listening. Enjoy Moving House and we will see you, B, and you listeners in the next episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> all right.